0: Our scripture reading today comes from Paul's letter to the the Romans, chapter 12, verses one through two. I appeal to you therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds, so that you may discern What is the will of God? What is good and acceptable and perfect? For the word of God within us, for the word of God among us. Thanks be to God. Good morning, friends. My name is Scott Gilliland, and I am the senior pastor here at Arapaho United Methodist Church. I want to welcome you to worship this morning. Thank you for your patience with us. If you're just now tuning in, isn't it fun when things don't go quite right? I am so thankful that we have the team that we do that can adapt in the ways that we do, and I give thanks for them this morning. We are continuing in a sermon series today called Unmasked, where we are looking at some of the deficiencies that our culture tries to cover up that doesn't train us very very well or equip us well, and how our faith can actually be a help to us in these ways. Last week, we discussed the topic of grief. You know, our, our prevailing generic US culture doesn't handle grief well. We we like to cover everything with a veneer of positivity and, and always moving forward, never looking back. And and we find in scripture and in our faith that grief is actually an extremely meaningful and important part of our lives. And it's in grief, in the in the process of grieving well, that we can find so much hope and redemption. If that sounds like a message that you need to hear, I encourage you to go and find our, our sermon from last week, and, and I pray that it's a great for you. Um, if this is your first time worshiping with us, I want to call your attention to our website, arapahoumc.org. And if you go to arapahoumc.org new, you'll find a short, like 10 second form to fill out. And that'll sign you up for our weekly newsletter. It also get you a personal contact from me and another one of our pastors on staff. We would love to help connect you with the life of this church in any way that you would find meaningful. We continue in our sermon series today, as I said. And to get to the topic, I want to share with you some stats, some data. Now, I was an English major in college, and I love to read and to write, but I also love numbers and data. Something about percentages just get me excited. I don't know. Uh, in 2014, there was a Gallup poll that was conducted, and, and they found that on average, U.S. workers work 47 hours a week. I didn't say get paid for, but work 47 hours a week. That's on average of all workers, not just full-time employees, but all workers, 47 hours a week. This is supposedly in a in a place where over 100 years ago, about somewhere around there, we had laws put into place that was meant to codify and standardize a 40-hour work week, and yet here we are in 2014 when this poll was conducted 47 hours a week. I imagine it's gotten worse since then. And then more recently, Gallup conducted a poll. They found this, that Twenty-five percent of U.S. workers feel burned out. Do you know what that means? It's, you've probably felt this before. It's when all that joy, that passion, that energy that you used to have about your work, it's gone. You're just a shell of yourself. You're literally making it through every single day. And a quarter of U.S. workers feel burned out more often than not in their work. Two-thirds feel burned out on a regular basis. Now that tells us some things. It tells us that we're a a culture that values productivity, that, that values keeping up appearances, that everything's fine. I mean, how many of us show up to work and pretend like we've got it all together? And inside, we can't stand what we're doing day after day. We're burned out, not just at work, but in our lives as well. You know, this COVID time, I think, has revealed that in a new way, perhaps a bit of a humorous way. Uh, like many of you, I've developed some hobbies during COVID time. One of the things that has kept me sane is smoking barbecued meats. I got a Traeger grill for Christmas from my parents. And so simply sitting outside and, and pretending like I know what I'm doing, it's all electronic, it does it for me, but I feel really cool. Um, that's been giving me life. I like to make delicious sides to go with it. One of them is mac and cheese. I make a mean mac and cheese. And we can get back together and do some potlucks again. We should have a mac and cheese throwdown. To make my mac and cheese, I need flour to. To make kind of a bechamel sauce. Your pastor's kind of bougie like that, right? And, uh, and so I go to the grocery store about a month into COVID time and, and, and I go to my Kroger and I go to the flour aisle because we're out of flour at my house. And I go to the flour aisle and there's not a single bag of flour, not a single type of flour, none of it, not even the big like industrial 10 pound bags of flour. They're gone. I go home and I'm like, Reagan, what is going on? There's no flour at Kroger. Did a truck catch on fire or something? I didn't hear about this. She said, everyone's making bread. What? What are you talking about? Yeah, everybody's making bread. Remember when COVID time was cute and fun and we all just made bread because I guess bread was too expensive and hard to get already? <laughs> it's weird. Why, why bread? I don't know. Maybe I do know. Maybe it's because we have a hard time being unproductive. Maybe we have a hard time acknowledging that everything is not okay. And so maybe if I just put my hands to making bread, I can hold it all together. Here's a question I've been wrestling with this week. In a culture of productivity, and everything's fine, right? Have you seen the meme of the dog in the burning house? This is fine. In a culture of productivity and everything's fine, how can faith guide us to self-care? How can our faith guide us to self-care? Because I don't know that our culture will guide us there on its own. So the Apostle Paul is going to help us in our journey today. In his letter to the church in Rome, he's writing and he says this, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, By the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. And I want to talk about that first verse for a moment. There's three words in there that really kind of jumped out to me that that I dug a little deeper on that, that I think are meaningful for our conversation today. The first word is this, when he says, A living sacrifice. That word living, that's I think that's an important word for Paul to be using. On the one hand, Paul considers himself a part of the Jewish tradition. You know, the early Christian movement didn't see themselves as a separate religion. That didn't happen for many, many decades into their existence. It began as a reform movement of sorts within the Jewish faith. And Paul saw himself as a devout Jew who happened to believe that the Messiah had come and that person was Jesus. And so on the one hand, he's talking about a living sacrifice to differentiate from the Jewish tradition he had known, which was to present animal sacrifices in the temple, right? That was a practice that had been going on for centuries, millennia perhaps, and and so he's saying, no, no, now we are the sacrifice, but we're a living sacrifice. That's, That's one element to that word, but it goes deeper than that. And understand why I think this word has so much weight with Paul. We have to know Paul's story. Maybe you don't know Paul's story. Paul used to be a guy named Saul, So frequently in the Bible, when someone has a transformative experience with God, their name is changed as a result. Well, Paul once was known as Saul, and Saul was, for lack of a better term, a violent extremist within the Jewish faith. He had so warped and corrupted what the intent of the Jewish faith was meant to be, and he had become this violent extremist as a result. And as the Christian movement began to grow and spread, he set his work to persecuting and torturing and killing Christians. And so one day it, the story goes that Saul is walking on a road to Damascus, and he encounters the spirit of the living Christ, and his whole life has changed he's called into this movement this reform movement within judaism he he's called into this movement of jesus and his name is changed as a result. Now, something important happens there because Saul Saul that becomes Paul knows that Saul has to be dead and gone. That life brought him nothing but pain and death and hatred and misery for him and everyone he came into contact with. None of that needed to make its way into his new life. That's why we hear so much Paul referencing the new life that we find in Christ. He puts it this way in Romans chapter 6, the same letter that we've been reading this morning. In chapter 6, before chapter 12, he says, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore, we've been buried with him by baptism into death, and so that just as Christ was raised from the dead to glory, or by the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. Just as Christ died, we died, and just as Christ rose up, we rise up. Now that's important for Paul because he knows that the life he was living before led to nothing but sin and death for himself. So he knows that this new life means something for him. That's why when he says a living sacrifice, I think he's saying more. I think what he's saying to us is that we're called to worship God, to serve God by living into this new life that we've been given by celebrating the gift of life that Christ made possible by stewarding the value of this life and not returning to the broken and dead ways that we lived before. In a moment, I'm going to talk about how we all desire to go back to normal, right? I think Paul would say maybe back to normal isn't what we want, and we'll say more about it in a second, but maybe this pandemic season is revealing things that were dead and broken that need to stay that way. Things like working 47 hours a week on average, things like two-thirds of us feeling burned out regularly in our lives. Second word that jumps out to me is this word sacrifice. Paul didn't just believe in finding joy in life, he also believed in committing yourself to hard things, to challenging things, to sacrificial things. He himself wrote letters from prison, ended up tortured and martyred for his faith. Paul understood the difficult call that came with the Christian faith, sacrifice. It got me thinking about one of my favorite classes in seminary. It was called The Church in Social Context. It was taught by Professor Hugo Magallanes. and The whole class revolved around this kind of central question that Professor Magallanes asked at the very beginning of our first class together. He said, what is essential about the Christian faith, about the Christian church? And by that, what he meant was, what is it that the Christian movement brings to the table for the world that we can't find elsewhere? Why does it need to exist? Why commit yourselves as seminarians to this movement, to this church? What is so special about Christianity And several of us offered up answers. Some of them he liked more than others. He actually kinda liked mine. I felt real good about that. My answer was that, you know, the self-sacrifice, I said, the self-sacrifice that I find in Christ on the cross. You know, that's meaningful to me. It's one of the reasons why even as I've learned of so many different faith traditions and and I and I gain so much from learning about them, I still remain committed to my Christian walk because that self-sacrifice, picking up my cross and following after Jesus, that that to me is essential. That to me is special. But I think that I disagree with myself now. I'm not so sure that sacrifice is that unique or special in the Christian faith. I'm not so sure that the world doesn't teach us to sacrifice. In fact, I would argue that our prevailing generic American culture teaches and demands sacrifice really well. What I mean by that is this. I think about my friend, Mike, I met Mike about 10 years ago, and we became friends, and then we had breakfast one morning, and he told me some more about his story that convinced me he, did, he needed to be my mentor in addition to my friend. Do you have any friends that are a couple of chapters ahead of you in the book of life, and so you keep them close, so you can make sure you're not crazy all the time, they can give you whatever wisdom they possess? That, that's Mike for me. He told me that, you know, he had at one point in his life been a big tower attorney in Dallas, working for one of the most prestigious firms. I'm talking. Making just stupid amounts of money, living the absolute American dream—wonderful wife, two beautiful boys. So he was sending them to this really expensive private school uh, so they could learn shapes and numbers and pay college tuition for that, right? Right. And, and, and so he was doing everything he was supposed to do in the path that he'd chosen. He was living the absolute American dream. And then one day he woke up and he realized he hadn't been to his son's sports games or practices for months. He hadn't been at home on the weekend for weeks. He'd missed too many bedtimes to even count. He hadn't been on a date night with his wife in forever. In the name of what? Corner office with a better view? The title of partner at a firm that people care about? So he walked away, he went and started practicing family law and he didn't make stupid money, he just made really good money. He, he said his kids, instead of going to the really expensive private school, they went to the really good public school where they lived. You know, It wasn't like he sent himself in this radical other direction of life. He just had to reprioritize and say, wait, I am sacrificing so much in the name of what? A bunch of stuff I can't take with me, a bunch of stuff that when I sit back and look at my life is ultimately pretty meaningless. See, I think that our U.S. culture is really good at teaching and demanding sacrifice. I think that life naturally leads us to sacrifice, but it's our faith that leads us to consider what is worth the sacrifice. The world we live in, the culture we're steeped in, the life that we're living is going to lead us to sacrifice, but it's our faith that gives us the discernment, that Holy Spirit discernment that helps us know what is worth the sacrifice. That's a question I have to ask myself all the time, and I feel called out by the Spirit so frequently saying, why am I sacrificing so much to to what? The third word that jumps out to me in this first passage is the word acceptable. Acceptable. This living sacrifice, Paul says, is ultimately acceptable to God. Now, there's other translations that use the word pleasing to God, and that's probably more of an accurate statement. It's it's things that delight God, that that God finds joy in. And and at first you might be twitching a bit and saying, now wait a second, Pastor Scott, I I thought that God loved all of us totally and completely, that God's grace was pervasive and, and full and complete, and there's nothing we could do to make God love us any more or any less. Yes, that's true, but Paul says don't lose sight of the fact that just because God loves you totally and completely doesn't mean that God can't appreciate our actions when our actions are aligned with the spirit and vision of God. He says, ultimately, this living sacrifice is acceptable. It's pleasing. God finds joy and delight in this living sacrifice. So theologically, we can take a couple of paths here, right? And either, first, God's a sadist who wants to see us suffer for things that make no sense and are meaningless, who who wants us to sacrifice our lives in the name of things that don't matter, or... God takes delight and finds joy in those things that will ultimately fill us up as well, that will lead us to feel satisfied with our lives, even when they're incredibly difficult sacrifices, even when we're like Paul in chains, tortured, martyred for our faith. Paul never once questions if it's worth it. He's satisfied with the life that he's living. I think it's important for us to be the good kind of tired in this life to find those things that are worth putting our lives behind, that's worth getting exhausted for, because we hit our bed at the end of the night and fall asleep like that because we knew that was a good day where our time was well spent. I think about the ministry here at Arapaho, My friends, these last six weeks have been bonkers. Ain't nobody prepared me to be a senior pastor in pandemic time. I skipped that class in seminary, right? They hadn't written that book yet. I guarantee a lot of folks are right now. This is hard work. It's the hardest work I've been about in, the last six, in, in these last six weeks of my whole life in ministry. And yet every day I hit my bed and I fall asleep in 30 seconds. Reagan's real annoyed by that. She says, you fall asleep and snore so fast. But every morning I wake up and my feet hit the ground and I am more energized than ever before because I know that what I'm doing matters. I think about my kids. I come, I I have a long day of work, and and still I try to be present with my children, even though, goodness gracious, somebody say amen. A four-year-old and a one-year-old, they can be exhausting. We were just talking about having an exorcism for toddlers before worship started. That's the kind of conversations we have in the house of the Lord, right? And so I get it's exhausting, but when I do those things, when I engage with my children, even though I am exhausted, it's meaningful, and it fills me up. I think about date nights with Reagan, trying to be intentional about the time we spend together, even though it would be much easier for me to just turn on the Rangers game and zone out, even though right now it's really easy not to watch the Rangers because they're terrible. But my point is, it can be hard to take time to plan those meaningful experiences, especially in a pandemic season, but it's worth it because I see how much it matters to her, and I find myself filled up in the process. Here's the point. Part of self-care, my friends, is sacrificing ourselves to the things that will fill us up even when they wear us out, but they don't burn us out. When you you set your life to things, when you you sacrifice yourself to things that fill you up even when they wear you out, that that's part of self-care, making sure that the things you spend your time doing matter. Because remember, God is looking for a living sacrifice and not a dead one. Don't spend your life sacrificing to things that simply burn us out. Now, I know that we started worship a little late, and I know my sermon's already at its time, but there's something I want to talk about this morning that I think is important when we talk about self-care. So if you'll permit me a couple more minutes, go, let's go together into verse 2. And Paul says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So we've discussed the patterns of this world as it relates to overworking and productivity and burning out. But there's another pattern that I want to drill down on this morning that I think is important to name from a pulpit. It's a pattern I think has only been exacerbated during this COVID time major depression disorder that's the clinical name for a season of deep depression when you feel tired you don't sleep or you don't sleep the same you don't eat the same you're irritable you just get no joy out of life it's beyond burned out it's almost to the verge of hopelessness major depression disorder it was reported in over 7% of US adults in 2017 alone And that might not sound like a big number to you, but the trend is even more concerning. 13% of uh, of adults reported major depression uh, in the ages of 18 to 25, so almost double between 18 and 25. And of those who reported symptoms, 35% had no help whatsoever, received no treatment. It's even worse for our teens. 17 to 20% of 15 to 17-year-olds report major depression. That's a concerning trend. It's important to talk about this stuff, and I believe so from the pulpit too. I, I live with major depression. I had my first experience when I was in the eighth grade, when I had some cousins that were very close to me move away, and I felt isolated and alone for the first time in my life. I I had my second season of major depression in college. There's this one time I woke up in a horse stable. That's another story for another day. Uh, But I spent a whole week, whole week in my dorm room, never left, didn't go to classes didn't talk to anybody, was convinced that, that the world was out to get me, that there was nothing I could look for that had hope until finally I was able to call my mom, almost flunked. Your senior pastor almost flunked out of undergrad. I had another season shortly after my daughter was born when she was a little less than a year old. I didn't think that would happen to me, but Reagan knew something was different in my life. And she says, everything okay? And I said, no, it's not. And I found my way back into the doctor's office. I've been on medication at times, That's a means of grace for those of us who are suffering in this way. Part of my toolbox now is going to regular therapy sessions with my man Terry who connects me to my emotions. I don't like to feel. Uh, I also learn things like, hey, maybe you should get outside and take a walk. Hey, maybe you should go and talk to somebody. Hey, maybe you should. Hey, maybe you should. I build my toolbox of things I can do to stave this off. I, I bring this up to say I know it's getting worse for a lot of us during this time. I have two friends who are colleagues of mine who both reached out to me unprovoked in the span of about one week within the last month. And they said, hey, I know you've talked about walking through depression in your own life. And I know you've talked about being medicated at times. It, let me tell you, I, I feel like I'm getting so much worse. And, and, and do you think that could be helpful for me? I know, I know it's getting worse for people. I'm grateful they could reach out. You know, even my wife Reagan, who's never once battled depression in her life, after a month of COVID time, she is an extrovert's extrovert. Anybody else like that in the room, raise your hand, type that's me, right? She's an extrovert's extrovert. And a month into COVID time, man, she wasn't sleeping right, she wasn't eating right, she was irritable, she was feeling down and depressed. And I said, Honey, I think you're experiencing depression. And, and I think part of the reason was, and I'm not a psychologist, so this is not medical advice, but I think part of the reason is some of us who are so energized and, and find so much life and joy around being other, seeing other people, having dinner parties, having friends over, all those tools that would be in our toolbox are off the table. And so we're having to battle depression for perhaps the first time in our lives. And it's concerning because we're more isolated than ever before. I think about those who may be suffering in new ways. And my prayer is that we can reach out to someone and simply say, I am not okay, everything is not fine, and I need to talk. I pray that we can reach out to those whom we know may be isolated, someone that maybe used to text more often than they are right now, and we could say, hey, is everything okay? Holy Spirit put, me, put you on my heart. I wanted to reach out and see if you're okay. For those who've suffered without help long before the pandemic was a reality, my prayer is that we could advocate for mental health concerns to be destigmatized and our mental health care could be accessible and affordable for everyone in the country. My friends, going back to normal should not be our goal. On the subject of self care, going back to normal means going back to a culture that ignores the growing epidemics of burnout and poor mental health. We need a new normal. Say amen, somebody, where self-care and mental health are prioritized and practiced. We need a new normal where self-care and mental health are prioritized and practiced. And friends, what if faith could lead the way in this conversation? What if our churches could become houses of true healing? What if we understood that God is not pleased with empty shells of human beings, but rather delights when we come fully alive in body and mind and then commit ourselves, our full selves, to the work and worship of God's Spirit in the world? What could it change? What could it change in us, in the lives of those whom we love? My prayer is that we could reach out and simply say, I'm not okay, that we Feel no shame nor guilt for prioritizing our own health and care in a holy and pleasing and worshipful way. My prayer is that we could let our faith guide us to a new normal that our homes and our workplaces and our world desperately need. That we could be a caring people for all people, including ourselves. Amen.